footsteps behind you and footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav Sky. Good evening and welcome to your nightmares. Where we like to keep it dark and dreamy here at Dark Softly Tales. I'm your host, Mav, and I will be guiding you through part two of God's Guns and Serpent Tongues. If you ever hear me laugh after I say welcome to your nightmares, for some reason that sounds really funny to me, but it's also very soothing. I just feel like laughing every time I say that. It works, so I'm going to keep doing it. A quick request before we start, we want your true stories for our True Tales to Tell in the Dark episodes that I will be starting in March. If you have a true scary story to tell, please email it to darksoftlytales at gmail.com or you can also check the show notes for details. God's Guns and Serpent Tongues was originally published in an anthology called Guns and Romances by Crossroads Press. You can also find the link to that in the show notes. About the time I wrote this story, I had two male kittens named Mittens and Pinkman. And yes, Pinkman was named after Jesse Pinkman from Breaking Bad. Kind of tells you about the timing of when I was writing this story. But yeah, the kittens were adorable as snot. Mittens was a tuxedo, and Pinkman was one of those lovely Russian blues. I love Russian blue cats. They're so beautiful. Anyway, these kittens were as playful as they come, and one of their favorite things to do was constantly sneaking up on one another, pouncing, and then they would wrestle back and forth all over the kitchen for the longest time. One day, during these long, rowdy spells, I thought, huh, What if I took two gods and had them wrestle for power like my playful kittens? Horus has always been one of my favorite Egyptian gods, so I chose him. And of course, Horus is connected to Ra. They are two different aspects of the same entity. Horus represents the left eye and rules the moon. Ra represents the right eye and rules the sun. It worked out perfect to make them brothers. In the story, they divide mankind. One half is of Horus, the other half is of Ra, with a very tiny portion that is unclaimed by either. They are called the Unbelievers. Ironically, our world at present is very much divided like this. It was not this polarized when I wrote this story back in, I don't know, 2014 or so? I get chills now thinking about the correlations between this story and present time. Where there is polarity and division, what comes next is often extreme conflict that can easily build into war. So in the story, when the gods divide the planet, there is war. There is also a polar shift. And after the shift, there is colossal mole rats shooting golden laser beams from their eyes. Of course, they are of raw. And for any of you who are curious, do a quick search on mole rats. Creepy looking things but also research the way their colonies work. It's utterly, utterly fascinating. And then there's the flying serpents who patrol the night sky. 
they are of Horus. I use quite a bit of symbology used in the old mythologies, particularly with the scene around the sapphire obelisk. That gave me chills to write, and even more so when I narrated it. It felt like I was tapping into something sacred that was both light and dark, if that makes any sense at all. But I'm not going to say one word more, because our tale is yet to finish. Let's jump back into the desert, shall we? I understand you may feel concern over that mean old lioness, but I promise I won't let her catch you. Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark softly. He. He frowned, watching her walk away. She waddled a little as her hips learned to deal with the extra weight filling in her front. Her sling sagged on her back, and her tummy profile extended deep into her shadow. It was true. He had not been on the refugee airplanes, but had traveled after the polar switch from a spiking hot Portland into the deserts of northern Oregon, as instructed by Horace. The god had said he would find what he was looking for after a few weeks' journey. When he'd come across her strapped into an airline seat in the middle of the desert, he knew she was whom Horace had foretold. She wasn't strikingly gorgeous, like a magazine model, but her cheekbones were high, her mouth full, and her hair long and frosted. When he'd unbuckled her and stretched her on the sand to check for broken bones, he had been amazed to find her untouched, other than a few bruises. When her eyes opened, they took his breath away, and he knew they were meant to be together. She didn't think so. That much was obvious from the very beginning. He chalked it up to her being an unbeliever, a hopeless pessimist. He had been slim on supplies at that point, but the wreckage of the refugee planes had provided water, the mole rats, food. Horace had not spoken again, and he was hesitant to travel too far from the wreckage until Horace spoke his mind. But she was insistent. He hadn't seen the harm, so they had left. When Horace came to him in a dream the night before, the god had told him to walk in the falcon's shadow, and soon the child's name would be revealed. He thought the dream meant to go back to the airplanes, where they had protection. But now, he wondered. As she walked away into the blazing sun of Ra, he looked to the heavens, asking for a sign. An ice-silver falcon appeared out of a cloud. It flew in loose circles overhead, casting its shadow upon the sand. Picking up his sling, walking inside the shadow, he followed her. When she stopped, put her hand to her brow as if searching for him, he waved his arms to get her attention. But either she didn't see him or didn't care, because she turned back to the sun and kept moving. And he kept following. Her. 
She held her moleskin overhead like an umbrella, shielding herself from the harsh sun. Somewhere behind her, the empty bottle glistened beside her faded tracks. She stumbled in the heat, keeping her eyes on the sun. When it touched the horizon, the mole rats would come out to play, and she needed to be ready. The mole rat society was much like ants or bees. There was one queen, a handful of breeders, and the rest were tunnelers or soldiers. In this case, Ra was their king. Instead of feeding only on plant roots and worms, they also ate human flesh at sunset, after they had been burnt to a crisp. He had been the one to come up with the idea to stand back to back at sunset, watching out for each other. They had better chances blowing away the mole rats when they had each side covered. She had been the one to figure out early on that the mole rats rose out of the ground, facing away from the sun, so the light wouldn't burn their eyes. She slipped the loaded magnum from her sling and popped extra rounds into her pockets, just in case. Shadows lengthened as the day wore on, seeping across the golden sand like a stain. A single set of footprints trailed into the vast emptiness behind her. As the sun lowered, she stowed her moleskin, relieved by the late afternoon cool. As much as she had worried about being of Ra, if she was of Ra, why would the sun pour upon her, trying to boil her skin? Why would the mole rats be so determined to fry her with their beady eyes, devour her limb by limb? After a moment, a thought occurred to her. It was frightening, one that made her clutch her stomach. It was noticeably bigger than it had been this morning. The thought was this. Ra didn't want her. He wanted her baby, her child. The nape of her neck goose pimpled. That was the truth, and she knew it. And suddenly, she was afraid, very afraid. She glanced around as she walked, wrapping her one hand protectively around her stomach and clutching the magnum tight in the other. Another thought occurred to her, and this one was even more daunting. Could Ra be the father? The very notion forced her to bend and wrench into the sand. The heaves came in waves, and when they slowed, she hugged her belly, stilling the anxiety. She wiped her mouth on her arm, gagging at the awful metallic taste. A rumble beneath her feet announced her enemy. She dropped her sling planted her feet in the ground, squared her shoulders, and faced east. She drew back the hammer of the revolver. The giant rodent emerged from the desert floor, its white skeletal head poking up like a gaunt doll, teeth scissoring together like clockwork gears. Its snout faced east, away from the sun, giving her the perfect shot between its ears. She aimed and fired. The mole rat let loose a high-pitched howl. Disoriented, it zapped the sand in front of it, then raised its head and blasted lasers into the heavens. Die, you raw, damned piece of shit! She fired again and again. The beast fell like Godzilla into its own flames. That was easy enough. Letting out her breath, relieved, 
She released the magnum's catch and flipped open the cylinder. Three rounds left. She dug into her pocket for the spares, just as the earth began vibrating. And by the feel of it, it wasn't one mole rat on its way. It was a whole colony. The spares dropped from her fingers as she heard the beast surface to behind her. She slapped the cylinder back in and swirled around, firing. The mole rat already had her locked in its sights. Its laser blazed. She dropped to the ground, intending to roll, but her stomach, considerably larger than before, prevented her. She flung the mole skin over her face and torso. The laser scorched over the moleskin, blistering her legs. At first, she felt nothing, giving her time to drop the blanket and fire the last round as a second mole rat rose out of the sand. The bullet missed both. She was screwed. And as this knowledge hit her, so did the pain. It rolled through her nerves, building like an angry volcano. Writhing, whimpering, she clung to the moleskin, as both rats zapped her at the same time. The last thing she heard, after the spare rounds in her pockets exploded, was her own anguished cries as her skin sizzled and popped. Him. He halted, alarmed when she bent and threw up. Was she ill? Was she in labor? He doubted the labor. She was only a few months along, and yet her stomach had grown more during the past two days than it should have. Something was wrong, but he didn't know enough about women or a pregnancy to have the slightest clue what. Apparently, Horace didn't think he needed to know. Come to think of it, Horace had not been very forthcoming with information recently. It wasn't that he doubted Horace. How could he when Horace was as real as the moon and stars and the wedges that flew in the night? But he couldn't help but feel that Horace's motives surrounding the baby were not innocent. There was something special about her, about the child. He had felt it the moment he had laid eyes on her. She stirred a storm of emotions within him he had never felt before. When the poles had flipped and the old world changed, Horace had been his guiding light, his strong foundation in the chaos. But Horace had caused the chaos, at least some of it. Who would be the light and foundation for this woman, for the child? A rumble in the earth woke him from his thoughts. He shouldered his shotgun and she nailed the first mole rat. He fired at the two that rose behind her, but his shotgun backfired, its barrel exploding, nearly taking his arm off with it. She shrieked in agony. Both mole rats catching her in their deadly golden lasers. The falcon cried out above. He snatched the machete from its sling and charged the mole rats as they toasted her. Wedgets swooped in ahead of him, spitting and hissing as they flew along the edges of the falcon's shadow. The mole rats yowled and shots fired as wedget acid penetrated their skin, their yowls turning into rabbit-fevered roars when the wedgets attacked as a whole, devouring one and then another of the mole rats. He reached the fight as the fourth mole rat popped up out of the earth, an older, gnarlier-looking ghoul than the others. Its eyes focused in on him, 
gold liquid building into fire. He didn't care. He charged the creature at full speed, wielding his machete. The falcon shrieked above, and a wedget turned from its feast, raised its head back like a cobra, and struck the beast from behind. The laser beam shot into the sky, nearly hitting the falcon. He leapt onto its chest and hacked its jugular. Blood spurted like a fountain from the beast's neck. Liquid gold dripped like tears down its flabby old snout. He dodged the golden stream and continued to hack with a machete until finally the gnarled head rolled off like a snowman's, hitting the ground with a loud slurp. Flames shot up from its neck. He jumped to the sand as a massive body slumped to the earth and burst into an inferno. The silver wedges disappeared, but the falcon's shadow stayed and now moved toward her. He followed, and when he saw her charred flesh, tears sprang into his eyes. She was as broiled as if she'd been on a barbecue. Her lungs rose and contracted with sharp, crackling breaths. She was still alive, but for how long? A cool breeze fell from the falcon's shadow, and a sweet whisper. Take her to Hebe's fountain. He searched her sling for ammunition, stuck her revolver in his loincloth, and wrapped both their slings across his back. He then collected her in his arms and followed the shadow. As they journeyed on, the falcon turned into a gleaming silver star, its shadow into starlight. Wedget slithered by, hissing and flicking their tongues. He walked for hours with the young woman in his arms. Her skin smelled of burnt meat, and after a while, her breathing stopped. He didn't try to revive her, didn't feel capable of prayer. He focused on following the starlight, on moving one foot in front of the other. He had to trust that when he arrived at the fountain, Horus would make all things right. Her. She dreamed. She dreamed of a sapphire obelisk shooting out of a pool of water straight into the night sky. Around the fountain sat four creatures. A baboon with silver teeth. A falcon with a silver beak. A jackal with silver fur and an old man with the body of a cow, as ancient and wise as the wind. As she approached the fountain and four creatures, she fell to her knees, begging. Her pregnant stomach spilled over her thighs. May I drink too? She felt odd pains within her womb, pressure building and releasing. She would give birth soon. But first, she needed water or she would die. Please, give me a drink. The baboon observed her with round black eyes. Its lips curled back to reveal a silver toothed snarl. It rose, leaned into the pool, and filled a silver goblet. It cradled the chalice, walking on two feet like a man to where she knelt. She reached for the goblet. Please! The baboon held the goblet back, and as he did, a voice thundered from the sky. Nickin! Not understanding, she simply held out her hands for the water, groaning from the birth pains. Again, the voice thundered, Nickin! What is Nickin? 
she pleaded. The baboon drew his lips in a cruel silver smile and withheld the goblet, pointing a silver claw at her belly. She understood. In exchange for a drink, Horace demanded she name her baby Nekin. The baboon, seeing she understood, handed her the goblet. Cool, refreshing water splashed over the side of the cup onto her hands. She stared longingly into the water, made up her mind, then threw it at the beast's feet. I don't want it. The baboon hissed at her and kicked the goblet away, then walked back to its spot at the fountain and rejoined the other creatures. She wrapped her hands about her belly and moaned, awaiting death or birth, whichever came first. Another thunderous voice bolted from the night sky, only this one was stronger. It was so loud that the sky and the moon split into two, like a painting tearing down the middle. Massive green arms pushed both sides of night away. The green king sat on his throne of skulls. Ostrich feathers adorned the great crown upon his head. In his eyes were wisdom and kindness. From his chin, a long beard fell into the fountain, gentle and tender as a feather. A name appeared in her mind, and she embraced it. A tear dashed down the green king's face, and he nodded at her. And all at once, he rose back behind the sky, the night sealing the seam where it had ripped. He... At about midnight, when the moon sat squarely in the sky, and the whole earth stood between him and the sun, in the far distance, he saw a pool of fresh water. A sapphire obelisk rose from its center, Hebe's fountain. At first, he thought it only a fantastical mirage, for he was tired and parched. But as he grew closer, the starlight moved from him to the obelisk. A thousand blue fires sparkled and shimmered within its gem, its radiance reflecting off the water and filling the night with blue magic and wonder. Bring her to me, he heard the falcon cry. Mesmerized, he sprinted toward the obelisk. At the fountain, he gently laid her body at the shore. He scooped fresh water into his mouth and sighed at the deliciousness of it. He felt a prickling on his arms and, turning his wrists, he watched with amazement as his burned scars mended and healed into fresh new skin. If it had mended his scars, could it heal her body too? Turning to the blistered and oozing body beside him, he slipped his legs into the pool and eased her in until the water covered her waist. He put his ear to her chest and listened for her heartbeat and felt at her neck for a pulse. He felt nothing. Was she too far gone? He dabbed the cool water at her lips and dripped droplets into her mouth. They fell like teardrops and landed on her tongue, remaining fully formed as if her body and death repelled them. She stared into the sky, stars reflecting in her eyes. I failed you, he said, moving his hands over her eyes, closing the lids. But he felt more than just failure. He felt loss. Not the loss of a friend or relatives or siblings even. 
He felt the loss of a part that made him whole, yet he hadn't even realized that he had been whole until she died. A movement drew his eye. The tight skin of her stomach rippled with tiny feet and fists. He put a hand on her stomach, shocked at how much it had grown. A foot kicked at him. How could the child still be alive? He grimaced and glanced at the machete in his sling. Before he could move for it, she gasped and opened her eyes. She moved her lips, asking, and he knew just what she needed. Sitting her up, he cupped his hands and poured sips of water into her torched lips. More, she said. He refilled the flask and she drank. The wounds on her body bubbled up and sizzled as they mended and repaired. When the bubbles burst, fresh skin lay underneath. Blonde hair sprouted from her scalp. Despite this, she remained quiet and solemn, clutching her stomach and looking into the sky as if searching for something, someone. When her body fully healed, he laid her once more on the sand and stroked her jaw. She watched him carefully, intently. Do you trust me? Shocked, he sat back on his haunches and considered this question. And then he realized the question didn't need considering. Yes. Relief flooded her face and she nodded. For the first time, he saw a genuine smile. She placed one hand on each of his cheeks and pulled his face to hers and kissed him. Their lips and tongues moved and touched, ebbed and flowed. Lifetimes of memories swept between them, of other lives they had spent together before this life, good and bad. When he drew back, her face was contorted in pain. He frowned. What's wrong? It's coming, she said, clutching her stomach weeping. She. Labor lasted for hours, the pushing longer, and by the time Ra's son arrived, so did the baby. She held out her arms and he placed the baby inside them where the child began to nurse. The great fountain dried up and the obelisk sank back into the earth. An immense roar echoed through the desert. Alarmed, he jumped to his feet, cocking the magnum, eyeing first the desert and then the sky. The ice silver falcon flew overhead. Nakin, it cried. He glanced down at her. Name the child so we might have the protection of Horus. She spit at the falcon in the sky. Horus and Ra alike, they are both greedy to be god of the new earth. One wants to claim the child as his slave, the other wants to eat him. He stared at her in shock. Horus won it. Don't you see? The gods are brothers. They bite and roll like kittens fighting over a mouse. He was speechless at her blasphemy of his god. She said, We are not mice, and certainly not my son. He pondered this, confused and shaken by this revelation. She was an unbeliever, and perhaps this gave her more insight into the gods than those who had been handpicked by each. Do you trust me? her eyes asked. He nodded. Another roar filled the desert, 
only it didn't come from the clouds, but from the land. It was close. Behind you, she cried. He spun around, and there, only feet away, a lioness pawed the sand. Her mane was a tawny liquid gold. Muscles rippled beneath her taunt skin. She bared her sharp teeth and roared again. He aimed the magnum at the creature, pulled the trigger. The magnum merely clicked. Between carrying her to the fountain and the child's birth, he had it checked the magnum's chamber. The lioness sprinted toward them as he dropped the gun and seized his machete from the sling. The lioness ignored him, intent on the child. She leapt into the air, up and over him, and as she did, he swung the machete at her belly. His blade sank into the lioness, cleaving her down the middle. Her guts fell out as she crashed to the earth, snapping and growling inches from mother and child. He swung again at the lioness, and in two smooth movements removed her head. Neckin, the ice silver falcon cried. Wedgets poured from the invisible moon to the desert. They hissed and spat venom, aiming for the child. He held up the lioness's head. Do you see? Do you see what I've done to your brother? Neckin, the wedgets shrieked. The noise was like thousands of waves crashing to shore. No, she screamed into the Medusa's nest of serpents. His name shall be Osiris. Dropping the machete, he crammed around into the magnum. He held his wrist steady, aimed at the falcon, and fired. They. They fled the desert. He held a child at night, she during the day. They needed no protection, for what lay in their arms was more precious, more powerful than Ra and Horus combined. Lying in human arms, suckling at his mother's breast, growing stronger day by day, Osiris restored life to the dead desert through which they passed. Those who had fallen revived, and humankind once more scattered about the new earth. As mankind often did, they did not remember their dreams before death. Neither did they recall the gods that had claimed them. The mole rats rotted in their tunnels and the wedgets fled back into the sky. Ra rose as the sun every morning and Horus opened his silver eye at night. Osiris returned from the dead to rule once more, keeping the world and its gods in balance. Who likes dark stories? People who have experienced a touch of the dark side. People who are a little wiser to the world. People who like their bones chilled and their spines tingled. People like you and me. It's hard to find a story these days that write on the dark side with a touch of whimsy, humor, and heart. Mavsky spreads her dark wings and solves this problem for you. Head on over to Amazon and type Mavsky's name into the search engine. M-A-V-S-K-Y-E. At Amazon, you'll find her Tales to Chill Your Bones series, Girl Clown Hatchet series, Supergirl series, her cult classic novel, Wanted Single Rails, and, of course, her brand new release, Cold Hangs the Midnight. Choose your dark flavor and head on over to Amazon today.